Good morning. Good morning. Do I need to put this on? I don't think so. I'm a street preacher, so I'm used to getting a little bit loud and relying on the vocal cords that God gave me. So we'll do that this morning. It's an honor and a blessing to be with you. Um, the last 48 hours have been a whirlwind. Just a few days ago, we were saying goodbye to our missionary brother on the dusty streets of Kathmandu, and then not long after that, we were walking around in the cold, gloomy uh, air of, of, a, of a small German town, and then before you knew it, we were back uh, going through customs and immigrations here in the United States, and I've traveled so many places around the world, and for the first time in my life, when we came back into America, an immigration officer with the U.S. government actually said to me and my family, welcome back home. So I was really blessed and encouraged by that, and I believe, uh, based on my experience, that Washington Dulles is the best airport in all of America in terms of leaving and coming back. So I was thankful for that little blessing that we are often not able to experience because uh, anybody that comes back from traveling overseas to many countries is usually looked at with suspicion. And when you mention that you've been serving the Lord Jesus Christ nowadays, they look at you with even more suspicion. And when your passport is as thick as mine is with as many pages and stamps, some of which are stamps from countries that are considered suspicious, there's always something to deal with. But praise God that wasn't the case the other night. So we drove down from Virginia last night and we're excited to be here and I hope and trust that the Lord will use it uh, this week. Um, a lot of preachers would desire to come and preach a revival before a huge audience with every seat packed out and maybe on a TV screen or in a megachurch somewhere. And I want you all to understand that there's a certain simplicity about what I'm looking at this morning that is a blessing to me. There's a certain simplicity. I would rather have this place with this simplicity of worship, with many, many empty chairs to deliver God's Word than to be somewhere where it's all about churchianity, it's all about a show, it's all about the sick sophistry that usually goes with it. So I want you to understand that the empty chairs are not a discouragement to me. The few faithful that are here this morning, it's an honor and a privilege for me to share with you something that the Lord has given us in His Word. And I just trust that you'll be blessed by it. Um, we're very grateful for this church. This church sent my wife and I and our family to the mission field many years ago. So we look at Living Word as our commissioning church. And uh, since that time, we've been very privileged to serve the Lord in a, very, a, a number of places around the world, to grow as a ministry, and to always have a connection with this body of believers. And so we want to thank you for that. This church has supported us in our work from the beginning. And those that are a part of this body are a part of that. And we want you to know that we are grateful and that none of that is taken for granted. And we trust that we are worthy stewards of what you are supporting and investing in. Not all of us can go to the foreign field. If you can go, then by all means go, if you're able. And that's our situation. If you can't go, then give that others can. And this church and the people here have given that others can. If you can't go, you can't give, then pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers. Pray for those who are serving the Lord. With fervency, pray for the persecuted church. And then if you're like me, and you can go, you can give, and you can pray, we ought, you ought to be doing all three. So I am thankful for those that hold the ropes for us as we travel to very difficult places around the world. We just got back from a very fruitful two months, a little more than two months in South Asia. 
We spent time in northern India, up near the Pakistan border, in the Tibetan border in China. We spent time in Nepal, some very remote locations there, some time in Bangladesh, and it involved a lot of travel and a lot of preaching and a lot of giving out the Word of God. And so we're very, very thankful for those privileges and opportunities and for the prayers that we know went along with those things. Please, please pray for Brother Ricky Springer. Many of you have met him. We had to leave him behind in Kathmandu the other day. His primary ministry is to the Jewish people. And we rejoice to have multiple opportunities these last two months with Israeli travelers, both in India and Nepal. And when I left Ricky the other day, I rejoiced because we were literally batting a thousand when it came to Jewish travelers. Every single Israeli we talked to in that entire time left the conversation with a copy of a gospel tract or a copy of the Bible in Hebrew, and not one of them rejected it. So we were so grateful for that. The tourist season is winding down in Nepal now, but pray for Ricky as he goes out alone and continues to sow seeds. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to be, I'm going to be rejoining him this spring for some other things we have going on. So I don't really want to get too much into that. Uh, I do send out a newsletter, and many of you are all are privy to that, and I will let those things speak for themselves, and we thank you for your prayers. It's been a great privilege these last uh, few years of serving the Lord to have preached on the streets of more than 200 cities in all 50 states. Uh, we've been able to work and do the gospel work in, more than, in, in around 44 countries and to preach the gospel on the, of more than 100 universities and colleges both here in the United States as well as overseas. Um, we kind of view the work that God has called us to and the work that you support with Foolproof Gospel Ministries as having a threefold purpose. Primarily, we want to exist to publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that requires that we be bold in our outreach and bold in our evangelism, bold in ways that maybe uh, uh, churchianity or missions would say you cannot be. So public proclamation, we also believe very strongly that the Bible and the Scripture and sound doctrinal literature and gospel tracts need to be produced and they need to be disseminated. So we've always been about mass distribution of the Word of God and we believe that that is the best way to sow seeds of the gospel is to put the Word of God into the hands of people. Because the Word of God speaks to the heart. It divides the soul and the spirit. It does what my words cannot do. It does what my thinking cannot do. Just a week or so ago, we had a senior citizens team, believe it or not, from the, the small church we've worked with back in Catawba County, come to Nepal. So we had a group of five senior citizens that came to Nepal, and we showed them an incredible time. They were a little bit nervous about the hotel they had to stay in out in the village, a little bit nervous about the food, but we had a great time. We were out in a village area uh, working with some persecuted believers. I was doing some trainings down there along with my Nepali partner. And after a day of training and teaching, we gathered some folks from the church and the senior citizens that had come from North Carolina, and we went down to the border of India to the place where Buddha was born. Buddha was born about 500 years before Christ. And it was the real birthplace. There's a tourist place in Nepal that's not real. They just put it there because it's an easy place to get to. And one of the, of the three major religions in Nepal, Buddhism and Hinduism, tourism is the number one religion in Nepal. And so they will change historical facts 
to accommodate that. But nonetheless, we were down at Buddha's birthplace. was a huge festival. Thousands of people. I cannot describe to you the scene that we rolled upon. But we came in in a van. We pulled up right in front of the gates of Buddha's birthplace. And I told those senior citizens, okay, now it's time to work. So if you guys are uncomfortable, stay in the van, but open your windows and be prepared to hand out tracts. We had 5,000 pieces of literature, uh, 3,500 Gospels of John, another 1,500 Gospel tracts. I had the privilege of climbing out, getting on the roof, surrounded by people, cranking up the speaker, and then preaching the Gospel to those folks in their language. And in less than an hour, all 5,000 copies or pieces of Gospel literature were gone. Gone! Hands crowding around the bus, wanting a copy. You know, it was an incredible experience. And when that amount of literature, of Gospel literature, when God's Word is given out at, in that amount, there's no way that it cannot do something to bring glory to God. So that's always been a big part of what we do, and I believe strongly in that. And then finally, training. Training believers to be bold in evangelism. Training them in sound doctrine and scriptural truth so that we can grow together beyond the basics of the faith to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that is the core of the work we do, and it's so important, I believe, for us to have direct connections with the local church because the local church is the center of New Testament ministry. It's not the parachurch organization. It's not a huge mission organization. It is the local church. But I've had a great opportunity from the Lord these years to travel, to see many things, to be many places, to worship with believers in a variety of cultures and contexts, to see and learn from persecuted believers, to see people that I've been able to disciple, now they are discipling me and to see these wonderful things. But in all of this, particularly where America is concerned, there's been a great source of discouragement. So for all the encouraging things, all of the rejoicing, work in America has been a source of discouragement. Because here in America, we are ruled by what I would call the religion of churchianity. It's not biblical Christianity where the Bible is the final authority. It's not biblical Christianity where a risen Christ is the head of the church. It's worldly churchianity, where man-made opinion supplants the Word of God. Where Jesus Christ is not the head of the body, He's standing on the outside of the church knocking. And men are serving their own lust and pleasures. And this Laodicean lukewarmness that is so evident here in America is starting to spill over in other countries. Because they look to America as an example. And the, the good things that America has given to the world in terms of the Word of God have been received, but also the bad things. Also the watered down things. We were meeting with some believers in a home in Delhi the other day, and they cooked for us, and it was a precious time of fellowship. And as the dear elderly lady in the house began to share her testimony, I knew I was dealing with a genuine believer. And um, she began to talk about American preachers that she had had the privilege of listening to and hearing on the radio. And then she began to spout off some names that were like, wait a minute, these aren't biblical preachers. These are false teachers. These are TV preachers, false teachers. Men like Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn. And I just had to speak up and say, wait a minute, ma'am, I've got to tell you, you've got to be careful with anything that comes out of my country. God's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you a pastor of your church that believes the Word of God, and He's given you the Word of God. Stop looking to my country for good preaching. These people are false teachers. Be careful. 
She received it well, thank God. But they just don't know any better because they see what's on the outside but not the inner workings. And this Laodicean lukewarmness that is infecting other places where God is working is very discouraging. And it's my opinion that more than anything else, the churches of this country and this society need revival. We don't need just revival. We need a spiritual awakening in this country. It's, it's desperate times. And we need these things. But the reality is, we can't produce them. There's nothing we can do to produce something that is a work of God. So as we talk about revival this week, I just want you to understand that I'm not here to give you a formula for revival. I can't make it happen. I can't bring it. I can't adjust my words or be persuasive enough for some miraculous thing to fall upon this church. I'm not here to prescribe a formula. I'm also not here to tickle anyone's ears and tell you what you want to hear. A few emotional messages, some crying at the altar, some guilty feelings, maybe a fine performance for the preacher. You know, those things tend to be what we think brings revival, but they will not bring it in a biblical sense. Only God can bring revival to your hearts, to this church, and to this nation, and we have to want it. And I'm just going to admit right now that I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I'm just a servant. I'm just a private in God's army. I've had the privilege of going some places, meeting some people, and preaching God's Word at the ends of the earth. But that makes me nothing more than a servant. And if a servant does what his Lord commands him to do, he doesn't deserve any praise for that. He's just an unprofitable servant. So I'm no more than that, and I don't have all the answers. I don't have the power to save people or to change their hearts. I don't even have the power to change my own heart. Only God and the Holy Spirit can do that. But I do believe that the answers we seek are in the Scriptures. And I do believe that the Scriptures give us clear principles regarding revival or spiritual awakening. And I think we should look at these principles this week. And it doesn't have to be emotional, and it doesn't have to be a great, uh, uh, huge experience. It can be simple truth that can affect us individually. But we need to look at some principles the Scriptures teach about revival. And my experiences with the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ around the world have verified and reinforced these principles <coughs> that I believe are so important as we seek to understand revival. So we'll just see where the Lord takes us this week. Okay? Mike told me to throw away my watch. I want you to understand that if we were overseas and some of these small village churches that I've just come from, we would start in the morning and it would go till sundown. Okay? And it wouldn't just be me preaching. There'd be two or three other guys get up to preach. That would be a revival. And then before the preaching even started, there'd be more than an hour of just prayer. People praying for one another and worshiping the Lord. So let's just seek the Lord this week, see what He does. And let's not be bound by the schedules of American churchianity. If it's really that important to you to get to the restaurant by a certain time this morning, you're better off just going now and getting there early. There's no point to even stay. Because going to church doesn't score brownie points with the Lord, and staying until 12 o'clock doesn't earn any merit with the Lord. The only merit we can have with God is through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. So, why are we here? I believe that we should be here because we want revival. 
Not only do we want revival, we want spiritual awakening. So let me just define a couple of terms for you this morning. What is revival? Revival is the restoring of life to believers and churches that have previously experienced the life of God in being born again of the Spirit. But these have become cold, worldly, and ineffective. So revival is not something that happens to a non-believer. It's not something that happens or can happen to an unregenerate man born in sin who has not been saved. Revival is the restoring to life of what was once alive and on fire for the Lord but has become cold, worldly, and ineffective. It is the greatest need of the remnant churches of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Revival. What is awakening? What is a spiritual awakening? A spiritual awakening is the revival of attention to the things of God in society. It involves unbelievers. You have a spiritual awakening when a society in general turns its attention back to the things of God. And when this happens, unbelievers get saved. And then they go and come into the revived churches where they are discipled. And they go out and make more disciples. That's a spiritual awakening. Our nation today needs a spiritual awakening. Our society needs to turn its attention back to the God of our fathers. To the God that the founding fathers worshipped when they established this nation. And yes, our founding fathers were men that believed in a Creator. They weren't fools to deny the existence of a Maker. Our founding fathers were men who believed the Bible to be the Word of God. Andrew Jackson, one of our earliest presidents, he's on the $20 bill. One that was a great general in the War of 1812 and fighting against the Indians on the frontier. Was asked about the Bible in his later years and by a man who was somewhat of a mocker. And Jackson replied, That book, my friend, is the rock upon which this republic rests. Now, can you imagine a leader in our country, even the most conservative Republican out there, having the guts to say that? That's how far we have come. We need spiritual awakening in our society. We need revival in the church, and we need spiritual awakening. That's what we should desire, and that's why we're here. Will it come? We'll see. But that needs to be our desire this week. Here, revival in our lives and awakening in the lives of those that have not yet come to Christ. And those two things are tied together. When, in, throughout history, whenever there's been genuine revival, it always resulted in some sort of awakening. Whenever there was genuine revival in any church, it always resulted in believers going out and sharing the Gospel and people coming to Christ. There can't be revival in your life and it stays in the church. So if, if you're here today and you're not willing to be a witness for Jesus or a light in these dark times, then revival won't come to your life. Because revival produces a desire and a zeal to share the Gospel. That's historic. In our nation's history, there have been what I believe are three great spiritual awakenings. All of these awakenings began with revival in churches and they literally produced an awakening in societies that turned entire communities upside down. The first great awakening took place in America prior to uh, the founding of our country. It took place in the 1730s 
in the 1740s, men of God like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield and others were used of God during that time. And more than anything else, that spiritual awakening drew those 13 colonies together in such a way that when the time for independence came, they stood together and were able to resist the tyranny of England. In fact, some history books would claim that the ability of the colonies to work together was attributed more than anything else to the preaching of George Whitfield, a street preacher who traveled up and down the colonies 13 times, I believe, preaching the gospel in the fields. Of course, a lot of the cold, worldly, ineffective churches that needed revival in that day wouldn't let him preach. But he would go into the fields. One time he was asked about, why are you preaching out here? He said, well, the churches are closed. They don't want me, but praise God, the fields are open. A time of great spiritual revival and awakening. In the 17, about 1790 to 1840, there was a second great awakening. The, the nation had been founded. We had survived a war for independence and things, and the fruits of the first great awakening grew cold and ineffective. And then God did something through the ministries of circuit riders that rode along the frontier. The frontier in those days was like Louisiana, Kentucky, Ohio, places like that. Circuit riders, people that rode up and down on horseback preaching the Word of God. There was great revival. Camp meetings began back in those days. Sunday school began back in those days. There was a huge revival at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The Ivy League schools, some of the most liberal and wicked in this country today, experienced great revival. The gospel went out into the frontier. There was a preacher in those days by the name of Peter Cartwright, a Baptist preacher. During this time of awakening, it said that he preached more than 5,000 sermons and saw 10,000 people come to Christ. He wrote about this period of great awakening in America. These are his words. From 1801 for years, a blessed revival of religion spread through almost the entire inhabited parts of the West. Kentucky, Tennessee, the Carolinas. This place right here. And many other parts. In this revival originated our camp meetings. Some sinners mocked. Some of the old dry professors opposed. But still the work went on and spread in almost every direction gathering additional force until our country seemed all coming home to God. This was the early 1800s. Revival in the churches, awakening in society so that all the country seemed coming home to God. God's done it before. Sometime around the 1850s began what's called the Third Great Awakening. It was a time of economic panic, particularly in the Northeast. And average laymen, not pastors, not leaders, began to meet at the noonday hour in New York City to pray for revival. Men like Jeremiah Lamphere and others who would gather believers to meet at 12 o'clock noon during the lunch hour to pray. And before you knew it, a huge revival broke out. This revival spilled over into the Civil War. This doesn't get talked about much in history, but there's plenty of sources first-hand sources from which we can study these things. During the period of civil war, it is estimated that more than one-third of the Confederate army came to Christ and professed faith in Christ and were baptized during the war. Men on both sides of the lines. Revival broke out, awakening in a time of war when God did amazing things. 
So there has been spiritual awakening, not only here in America, but around the world. I can think of revivals that went through Wales and England, revivals in Europe and other places. God has done these things throughout history, and He is one that brings revival and awakening. Some say that there was a fourth great awakening in the 1960s and 1970s here in America. I know it better as the charismatic movement. That was not an awakening. Okay, What that produced was not spiritual fruit. It produced confusion. And that confusion has caused many problems around the world. The charismatic movement's done more damage in a place like Nepal than any other group of believers. It's really sad. This idea that experience is the judge over the Word of God. These things are dangerous. So, I can find three great awakenings in American history. But there's also been local revivals and local awakenings. When I had the privilege of traveling to Newfoundland off the east coast of Canada a few years ago with my Nepali national partner, we met some Christian people and they told of how preachers came in the 1950s and 60s on boats and just pulled up to the shore with speakers and started preaching the Word of God and how several communities were completely turned upside down. The businesses were closed and all the people came out to hear the preachers. And this little Baptist church that we, were, we, we, we parked beside and met this man was planted as a result of that. I never heard anything about that. You probably never heard anything about it. It wasn't in the headlines. It wasn't in the news. But these things have happened everywhere. I've seen revival in places around the world where the church was struggling to survive just a few years ago and God has opened the floodgates so that there's complete freedom to preach the Gospel. When my wife and I first traveled to Nepal in the late 90's, we could not openly preach the Gospel. We could not openly print or distribute Christian literature. We had to be very careful about it. There's no way I could have walked out on a street corner with a speaker to preach. But here we are, <coughs> 15 years later, I don't know what I would have to do in Nepal to get kicked out of there. We preached in so many places. Um, Brother Ricky took uh, the senior team that just came. Uh, Jamie had a, a dental emergency. I had to take her to the dentist in Kathmandu. What would have cost a couple thousand dollars here was just, I don't even think it reached $200 there. We were thankful for that. But I had to take her to the dentist. So Brother Ricky took this senior team from the church back in North Carolina to the second holiest site in all of Tibetan Buddhism. The Bodhnath Stupa. And they went out there and walked around that stupa, gave out a whole slew of tracts. Ricky preached the gospel. Nobody got in any trouble. It was amazing how God's opened up that country. So, revivals and awakenings are what God has done in the New Testament church. And every one of these revivals that are a part of American history all happened within a context. And without knowing that context, whether it was the tyranny of England... Or the, or the financial troubles that had everybody in a panic, or the Civil War. None of these things can be understood without considering the context. Just like the Bible. A text without a context is a pretext. These people who cherry-pick Scriptures to justify all kinds of sin can only do it when they ignore the context of Scripture. I had somebody recently tell me that God told them to do something and the Scriptures they used were very vague, and they completely ignored the context of those Scriptures. And the, the action that was taken sowed confusion in the church, and it hurt a lot of people. And this person's adamant that it was God who told them to do it. And where they supposedly heard this voice of God was in a place that's full of demonic activity. So I'm going to tell you right now, if I'm in a place like Ladakh or Nepal where people are worshiping devils, and I'm awoken in the night to what I believe is God telling me to do something... 
I'm going to make sure it's God telling me to do it before I make a knee-jerk decision because the devils like to speak and they like to speak loud in places like that. But God's not going to speak to us outside of His Word. He's never going to lead us to do something that contradicts the Word of God in its proper context. But all of these awakenings had a context, a historical and a spiritual context, and to understand them, we have to understand these contexts. We're not going to go into a history lesson today. But my point is, as we seek revival in our hearts this week, as we pray for revival and awakening in our nation, we need to understand the context of the days we live in. We aren't living in the days of the first and second great awakening. We aren't living in an American society where generally speaking, there's a fear of God and an understanding that God exists and at least an understanding of sin and right and wrong. Those things characterized our country for many years. Many of you grew up in a time where the things you're seeing now, you wouldn't dream would exist when you grow up. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you grew up in a dead religious home, but you grew up in a time when right was right and wrong was wrong. We're not living in those days anymore. We're living in a different context. And as we seek revival, we have to understand that the context we live in is one of spiritual apostasy. We are living in the last days. You see, all of these other awakenings and revivals took place before a major historical event. That major historical event in terms of God's plan and purpose for the ages was the regathering of Israel into a nation in 1948. And all of Jesus' prophecies in the Gospel about the last days and all the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation are centered around the people of Israel and the plan God has for that nation. The church is not a replacement of Israel. The church, the Gentile church, Gentiles, the church, Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ is a special program in God's plan. But the Lord has not forgotten His promises to Israel and one day they will awaken. And they will be the instruments of what's the last great revival or awakening in human history. We won't be here for that, I don't believe. I believe we'll be with the Lord in heaven when He comes to rapture His church. But we are living on the other side of Israel's regathering of the nation. We are living in days that were described clearly by Jesus Christ, the prophets of old, and the apostles as the last days. And the last days are a day of lukewarmness in the church, apostasy in the church, and just rampant sin, rampant sin and abomination in our society. The spiritual context in which we live and seek revival is last day's apostasy. And I don't believe we can ignore that. I believe we have to embrace and understand our context. So is there going to be a great, huge revival that sparks this week and spreads throughout North Carolina and throughout the country till all the nation comes home to God? No, it's not. Because we're living in the last days. And God has already written history and His Word is very clear that certain things must happen before Jesus returns. And it's very clear that there must be a falling away first. We're in that. But does that mean we have an excuse to be lethargic? Does that mean we have an excuse to just be fatalistic in our attitude? No. Because God is still in the business of bringing revival to individual hearts and awakening to the lost. And so, let's understand the context. And instead of seeking something big and glorious, let's seek something simple according to the principles laid out in God's Word. So the context. I want you to turn with your Bible, in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament. 
Brother Mike said he's been preaching from the Minor Prophets, studying the Minor Prophets, and we just happen to be going right back there today. I want you to turn to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And I want you to turn to chapter 4. I'm going to read the first six verses this morning. You see, so much that we see happening in America today once happened in Israel and Judah in the days of the kings. The same apostasy, the same turning away from God by a people that knew God is happening today. So we can study the example of Israel and learn a lot. No, America is not a new Israel. No, the church is not a spiritual replacement of Israel. But the Old Testament was given, it says twice in the New Testament, for our admonition so that we could learn from those examples. And when I read the state of things in Israel during the times these minor prophets wrote, I see a carbon copy of where we're living today. And if we want to understand how revival can happen, whether or not awakening can or will happen, we need to understand our context. And if you want to understand America today, yes, you can read the history books. Yes, you can watch the talking heads in the media. Yes, you can try to understand the most recent election. But you'll find a clearer picture in the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets when you look at Israel and its state of being many, many years ago before Christ. Because human nature is the same. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon wrote. Everything is the same. People make the same foolish mistakes and history repeats itself time and time again. So as we seek to understand the context in which we live here in America, hear this, the Word of the Lord. Hosea 4, 1-6. through 6. Hear the Word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. I believe that the Lord God has a controversy with the United States of America today. I love my country. I'm thankful that I was born here. But my friends, I'm a citizen of heaven and a follower of Jesus Christ first. And when my country and our political leaders turn their back on God, and they turn their back on Israel, then my allegiance is to God and His Word. Okay, the Lord has a controversy with this land. It's evident when you look at our government. Don't be foolish, my friends. If you went and exercised your right to vote a week or so ago, praise God, that's a great privilege we can be thankful for. But if you think a Republican-controlled Congress is going to fix things in this country, you're woefully deceived. We've had it before, and it didn't get fixed. Politics is not the answer. The Lord has a controversy with the land, inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Now, that sounds like a newspaper headline. Today, when I look at my nation, there's no truth, there's no mercy, there's no knowledge of God in the land. There's no truth, my friends. You can't even watch anything on television anymore, whether it's a documentary or a news program, without having to <coughs> sift between what is truth and what is lies. And the most dangerous type of lies, those, that which is mixed with truth. Everything you hear anymore. I can't hardly even hear a preacher anymore without wondering, where did that come from? Or does that agree with the Word of God? Or I've got to get out the Bible to see if it's true. Truth is falling in the streets. And when that happens in a nation, God has a controversy with that nation. We too live in a land where there's no truth, no mercy. There's no mercy in this country for the unborn child. That's the most dangerous place in this country. Not the streets of an inner city, but the, the mother's womb. And the people of the world look at our example and they follow it. 
I was so saddened the other day walking the streets of Nepal. I looked over at a a pharmacy and there was a sign that you used to never would see. And it said, abortion by tablets. In other words, they were selling morning after pills and advertising it by, hey, you can have abortion by just taking a tablet. Where did they learn that from? They learned it not from their idolatrous religions. Even their idolatrous religions say that's wrong. They learned it from our example. There's no mercy in this country. There's no knowledge of God. In fact, people in this country want to shove down our throats that there is no God. Every time someone mentions God in a government position, some ridiculous organization from Wisconsin comes out and tries to make legal trouble, and I'm just waiting for someone that will take one of those letters and just throw it in the garbage can and not even pay it mind. When are people going to start, stop being afraid of our government, and afraid of these these enforcements that don't have any power whatsoever. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Then he goes on in verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. You can't hardly have a conversation in this country with someone anymore that doesn't involve swearing and lying, killing, Not just the unborn, but killing with our hatred. The things that God says are murder of the heart. Characterize almost every conversation you can have in this country or see on television. There's no respect for life. The young people of this country have grown up thinking killing is a game with video games and so forth and so on. They're taught that they came from monkeys and not from the hand of a benevolent Creator. And so there's no value of life. They break out. Blood toucheth blood. That's our society up one side and down the other. Blood touching blood. Therefore, verse 3, shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the fields and with the fowls of the heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother... My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is the epitaph of a nation and a society that turns its back on God. So it stands to reason that we, being guilty of the same things, face the same verdict, the same judgment. The land will mourn. Those that dwell will languish. And we'll be destroyed for lack of knowledge. This nation will be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That is what we're living in as the church of the living God, as the followers of Jesus Christ who desire to be revived, to see awakening, and to be a light in this dark place, we are living in a context that demands God's judgment. And it will come. We must understand these things. Back in Isaiah 5, the prophet Isaiah, who was contemporary with Hosea, Hosea lived at the same time as Amos and Micah and Isaiah as well, was preaching the same message to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah likewise said, this was right before his vision of the Lord in chapter 6. In chapter 5, he talks about those that woe unto those that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night with the harp, the vial, the tabret, the pipe, the wine are in their feast. This is talking about a nation of partiers. Woe unto them. For they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of His hands. Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. This is a nation of partiers 
who have no regard whatsoever for the work of God, the work of His hands. And they will go into captivity for a lack of knowledge. That's the context we live in. We cannot be naive and ignore that. A context of spiritual apostasy. What is apostasy? The Bible defines it as turning away from biblical doctrine. Deserting the New Testament faith. My friends, as we seek revival, we must remember that the Bible prophesies worldwide apostasy prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me quickly to 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Just a short passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul is comforting the Thessalonian church. They are in fear because they think the last days are upon them and they don't fully understand what Paul has talked about in 1 Thessalonians about the rapture of the church and how the church need not live in fear. That when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction come upon them, but we have not been appointed to wrath. That was Paul's message in the first epistle. In the second epistle, the church was still struggling about whether they were living in the last days and what should they be doing. And there was you know, a desire to just sit around and do nothing but wait. And as Paul is addressing these things, I'll start at verse 1 in chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that's a reference to the rapture Paul talked about in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. That word falling away in the original language is, is a reference to apostasy. A turning away from truth. That falling away is not in society. It starts in the church. It starts with those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and then it spills over into society. We are where we are today in America because our churches ceased taking a stand for the Word of God. They ceased being motivated by truth and became motivated by numbers and popularity. This falling away first precedes the coming of Christ because it's the falling away, if you continue to read, that ushers in Antichrist. And when He's ready to be revealed, and the church has been raptured, and the great restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken out with the church, then all hell will break loose. And people will bow down at His feet and worship Him. The so-called Messiah that so many people are, are looking for is coming. The Messiah that Israel is waiting for because she rejected the true Messiah, He will come and they will bow down before Him and then they will see that He's a backstabber. And only then, after being brought to their utter end, will they recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So many that claim to follow Jesus today are looking for a Messiah that fits the profile of Antichrist. And when He comes, they will follow Him. A great falling away first. This has been prophesied by the Word of God and it will not change. We are in the midst of that falling away. That is the context we live in. That is the context in which we seek revival in our hearts. We can't ignore that. In times, apostasy is a biblical doctrine. The Bible says time and time again that there will be a widespread increase in apostasy and this will culminate 
with the worldwide religion of Antichrist. I think of many verses. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time men will depart from the faith, believing doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. 2 Timothy 3, This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of their own selves. And then it lists a whole slew of other sins. Lovers of their own selves. That's the pinnacle of all sin and it produces everything else. That's the day in which we live. The whole entire epistle of Jude is dedicated to the apostasy that is to come. Revelation, uh, the messages to the churches as they show us a picture of church history prophetically beginning with Pentecost all the way into the days of the rapture. We see a growth in apostasy. And then of course you have the culmination of that under Antichrist in Revelation 17 and 18 whereby the apostate church or the apostate religion of the world is called Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Ever since the church was established by the Lord Jesus Christ and founded at Pentecost, there have always been two streams of quote-unquote Christianity that operate side by side. The church age in which we live began with Pentecost. It ends with the rapture. We are in that period, and I'm not going to get into prophecy today, but we're in that period of history that pause between Daniel's 69th week and Daniel's 70th week, that great prophecy about the history of Israel. We're in that church age. And from day one, from Pentecost onward until today, there have always been two streams of quote-unquote Christianity. You've got New Testament Christianity. You've got biblical Christianity. This is the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since day one, even during periods of revival and awakening, the remnant body of Jesus Christ has been persecuted, it's been hated, it's been despised. Yet, these have continued. And they have persisted century by century and will so until Christ returned for His church. It is against this stream of biblical Christianity that Jesus said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we go back and study genuine believers throughout history, there are centuries in which the only trail we can follow is a trail of blood. Yet it endured. Yet it endured. And out of that trail of blood came the great reformation and the missionary movement and the great revivals and awakenings that I mentioned earlier. Even today it continues. In the midst of all this apostasy, God has a remnant. It might be as Isaiah saw it in chapter 1, except the Lord had left us a very small remnant here in Israel, we would be as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the place we're at here in America, but yet it endures. And as we think about revival this week, we need to ask ourselves, are we part of that remnant? Are we willing to be hated and despised and persecuted like the remnant throughout history? The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, or 2 Timothy 3, I believe, verse 12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's very clear. It's this New Testament Christianity that's been promised to exist. Christ promised these faithful ones, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We would do well to study the history of the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ. To study more in depth the awakenings and the missionary movements throughout history. It's been a great privilege to me as we traveled around in Ladakh, high up in the Himalayas of northern India, in a realm that's dark and thick with Tibetan Buddhism. It was a great joy to me because I had had the privilege of reading 
some testimonies of believers that had been in that area more than 100 years before and had encountered the exact same Spirit. And I read of one believer who visited a monastery back in the late 1800s, early 1900s that still stands today. And it was a privilege for Ricky and I to go there and to sow seeds of the Gospel and leave out tracts and stuff. But to read those testimonies was to learn from them and to avoid the mistakes they made and to repeat the things they did do for the kingdom of God unto God's glory. We would do well to learn these things. It's often been said that men who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. That's very true. But the converse is also true. When we're talking about the remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Bible-believing Christians are concerned, those of us that don't know our history may be doomed not to repeat it. And that's a history we want to repeat. Yes, it may involve persecution, but it's a history we want to repeat because it produced fruit. And if it weren't for the sufferings of those of bygone days, we wouldn't even know the Word of God. We wouldn't even have it in our language. And how do we honor that sacrifice? We're so easily dissuaded from the truth of the Word of God. And we so easily follow the fads of the day instead of their example. You've got the stream of New Testament Christianity. You've also got another stream that started off very small, but it continues to grow wider and wider. And is a mighty river today. And that's the stream of apostate churchianity. Two streams in the church. New Testament Christianity, apostate churchianity. Apostate churches like a little leaven in a loaf of bread will increase in number and grow worse and worse as the centuries pass. The Bible is clear about these things. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 where He talks about the kingdom of God is like a woman that took a little bit of leaven and put it in three measures of meal and before you knew it, the whole loaf was leavened. That's not positive. Nowhere in the Scriptures is leaven ever spoken of in a positive sense. It's always a reference to error and sin and negativity. The kingdom of God, the church here on earth, is like a woman that took a little leaven, put it in three measures of meal, and the whole was leavened. That's what has happened in the church throughout history. A little leaven, a little sin, a little error, and before you knew it, the whole church was leavened and compromised. This apostasy began during the days of the apostles. Just read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. John lived longer than any of the apostles. I don't believe he was martyred. He was imprisoned at the Isle of Patmos. and Say he was freed later and he was the only one of the apostles to die a natural death of old age. He wrote the Gospel of John, his three epistles in the book of Revelation, almost at the end of the first century. And so it was many years after many of the other apostles had died. And John encountered this apostasy with the Gnostics and others that were teaching that Jesus wasn't God. He was an enlightened human being and that we too could have this secret and special knowledge. The same garbage you have today in man-made religion. And John and Jude and others wrote against that stuff. So this was happening in their days and it's continued and steadily increased throughout the centuries and the ultimate fulfillment thereof is the mighty river of apostasy which is Antichrist, His government, and the many who claim the name of Christ who will follow them and who will be left behind to endure the judgment of this world. The Bible gives us abundant warning concerning apostasy and false churches. Abundant warning. Turn with me really quick to Acts chapter 2. This is where the church started. Acts chapter 2. It's only 12, 11. 
if we, if, we, if we go a little long, then there'll be no line at the Eaton Place. And it'll be quiet, peaceful, you can fellowship. Let's just look for a moment where the church began. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 43. This was after Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That was a spiritual awakening there in Jerusalem. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Verse 44, And all that believed together had all things common. Can you imagine a church today where all of us that believed were willing to just share whatever we had with one another and to meet whatever need there was without question? Can you imagine that? That was the church where it started. Now turn with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Let's see where the church ends. Right prior. What is the state of the church prior to the rapture? That's prefigured in the first verse of chapter 4 where John is called up into heaven. What is the state of the church when it's raptured? Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, verse 14, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot, but because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now listen to this. Why? Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Wow. Isn't that the church in America today? We have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the last state of the church. My how far we have fallen from Pentecost until Revelation 3, the Laodicean church period in which we live today. I've done an extensive study and a series of messages on these letters to the seven churches. They're up online if you ever want to listen on our website. But it's amazing to see how these letters are prophecy, history written beforehand. It's the entire church age from Pentecost to now written beforehand. And where do we end? We, we end where man always ends when left to himself. Failure. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. Apostate churchianity, it exists and has existed alongside New Testament Christianity throughout the entire church age, and it only grows and waxes worse and worse, as Paul the Apostle warned Timothy. We cannot deny this context. In this undeniable context, widespread revival and awakening will not happen. However, none of this is an excuse. None of this is an excuse for spiritual indifference or lethargy on our part as individual believers and church bodies. God is still in the business of changing individual lives. And from that simple truth, in the midst of this larger context, can we only move forward. This is what we're living in. What do we need to do? We need to acknowledge the context and we need to reject the spirit of this age. The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 12.32 that the men of the tribe of Issachar in the land of Israel had understanding of the times and thereby knew what Israel ought to do. We also, as Christians, need to have understanding of the times. Let's don't be naive. Let's realize where we are and what's happening in this world. Let's quit putting trust in the American government because it will fall. 
Let's start watching for our coming King. A church that doesn't watch for the appearing of the Lord is not a church that will be used by Him. My, how the coming of Christ has been forgotten in so many churches. It's never even talked about anymore. How can that be? We need to acknowledge and reject this spirit of the age. We need to seek an understanding of the times so that we may know what we ought to do in this apostasy. Just like the men of Issachar. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that we, need, we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's written to us. We need to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's the revival we need to look for. A revival that shines in the midst of darkness. We need revival in our own hearts. We need spiritual awakening in our own corners of influence. And that's what we should see. What we've seen in history is a wonderful cause of encouragement for which we can rejoice. But instead of looking to repeat something that happened before, we need to understand this context and labor within it. And that begins here. It begins right here. And the fruit and the results of that is in God's hands. Whether it's small or large, it brings Him glory. There's not a packed out sanctuary this morning. But does it mean God doesn't receive glory? No. I'm excited to be here and look at empty chairs. I really, really am. It does not bother me. Because it's not about me. It's about the Gospel. And when revival begins in the heart of one person, or when awakening comes to the life of one person, it can affect, it can affect or affect positively a whole town. We had the great privilege of worshiping with persecuted believers where we've been investing in this particular church in an area of Nepal. All of these believers are landless. They are squatting on government land. And they have been persecuted by the Hindu extremist of a nearby village. It's a real extreme Hindu part of the country. And uh, we've been trying to find them a piece of land where they can build and live on it without that persecution. And we thought we had a piece one time for a real cheap price. And then the villagers put pressure on the man wanting to sell it and he refused to sell it. He, he chose to keep it instead because the Hindus threatened him. He sold his land to a bunch of Christians. But it's amazing. That church came out of the dust. It wasn't the result of a big church planting ministry or it didn't require the North American Mission Board to start it. It came out of the dust. And it started with a woman that was possessed by seven demons. And some believers came in there and prayed for her and they saw seven demons come out of her. Yes, that happens in this world. Yes, it does. Seven demons came out of that woman. And she came to Christ. And she was healed. And her family came to Christ. And around that family, a small church was built. I had the great privilege of staying in their home in the village. Sleeping on a rope bed. No mattress, just ropes. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's more comfortable than many mattresses I've slept in. I like a rope bed. But this precious woman was such a glow, such a peace on her face, served us in her home when I knew she was poor. Served my entire family and the team that had come with us. Precious believers. People that I could learn far more from them than they could learn from me. And that was all God's doing. And it resulted in people coming to Christ from a village full of radical Hindus. And it didn't, none of them needed a white American to make it happen. An amazing testimony of how God is still doing things 
And we should seek revival and desire to be a part of that. One brother that I work with in Bangladesh, their church is so adamant to be bold and outreach. And Brother James came here to America and labored with me for a while. His church started in his bedroom. Him and his wife were just praying to God that they got married and they had no bed. One of them had to sleep higher up on a loft and the other one down on the floor. And they just asked God for a simple provision. Lord, if You'll provide us a bed where my wife and I can have one bed together, then we'll use it for Your glory. A missionary, long story short, was leaving the country and left a really nice bed for James and said, here it's yours, you can have it. And like Hannah who dedicated Samuel to the Lord, my brother said, Lord, this is your bed. So you've given it to us. We want to use it. We, we want to start trying to have a fellowship with believers here. And when they come to my home, they're going to sit in the bed. We're going to sit on the floor. And believers began to meet in that home. And out of that was born a church that's now more than 100 people pack into this little building in Dhaka, Bangladesh, in a Muslim country several times a week. And I've never seen a praying people like that. And they begged us to come in and do some teaching and training. And they, at the end of the week, they, they brought Ricky and I up there and they sat us down and they just wanted to wash our feet and show their love to us. They cooked for us and all of these things. Revival and awakening in a little dark corner of a Muslim country while all of America is turning its back on God. The Lord is still in the business of changing individual lives, bringing revival to Christian people and awakening to those who've never heard the Gospel. The Lord's given revival to me time and time again, and I, I trust He's done that for you. And we need to constantly seek this because we're prone to fall into the worldly ineffectiveness of the spirit of this age if we're not careful. We need revival in our hearts. We need a spiritual awakening in our own corners of influence. But going forward, this can only occur. In the context we live in, this can only occur if we embrace what I believe are four undeniable biblical principles concerning revival. We've talked about the context in which revival can only happen in the days we live in. The last days are not going to go back to the former days. It's not going that direction. It's going a certain direction that God has already decreed for His purposes and plans. It's not going back to the good old days. We need to accept that. And then once we've accepted that, we need to look at what the Scripture teaches in terms of principles of genuine revival. And each subsequent service this week, we're going to look at one of those principles. And I hope they will be a blessing to you. So, uh, we'll move forward tonight and through the rest of the week and we'll see what the Lord has to do. One of those principles I'm going to leave you with this morning. As we seek revival, we need to understand something very important. You cannot have revival unless you've been born again. Period. Something that's dead can't be revived. It needs to be brought to life. It needs to be awakened first. That which is awakened might grow cold, worldly, and ineffective and is thereby revived, but you can't have revival in your life unless you've been born again. That is an undeniable biblical principle. What you need is salvation. That's awakening. What is salvation? Jesus said in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. Jesus said this to a religious leader of the Jews, Nicodemus, that should have known better. 
A man that was seeking the truth but didn't understand the basics. You must be born again. That's the first thing you need to realize this morning. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never been born again, then you will not find revival this week or any other week. On July 8th, 1741, let me turn here in my notes, in a little place called Enfield, Connecticut, in a little whitewashed church building, I rode a bicycle across America three times in my life. I guess that seems pretty foolish. It was in many aspects. But the Lord allowed me to preach the Gospel all along those routes. And one of those routes started at the top of Maine and ended at Key West, Florida a few years ago. And I remember pedaling through Enfield, Connecticut. And the site of that little whitewashed church building is just a stone now. It's just a stone with a memorial. But July 8, 1741 little place called Enfield, Connecticut, a relatively unknown theology teacher and pastor preached a sermon. It was a sermon that he did not stand and preach as I'm preaching to you today. He merely stood with his notes and read his sermon and he did it monotone. Extremely boring. And you would think most people would fall asleep. His text that morning was from the book of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, chapter 32, verse 25. A very simple text. 32, verse 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense, saith the Lord. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. That was his text. Their foot shall slide in due time. And as he read his commentary on these passages, he said this to a gathering of believers in a whitewashed church building. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. Man, can you imagine preaching like that today? Good old hellfire brimstone preaching. Biblical preaching. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to seize it and burn it asunder. Now, man preaches a message like that today, people are going to get up and walk out. He'll never be invited back. All sorts of trouble. But on that day in July 1741, as this young preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that became famous in the history of American literature, sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know what happened? As he read it in monotone, people began to fall out in the aisles, weeping, wailing on their face before God, crying out for repentance, crying out for salvation. Those unsaved crying out to be saved, awakened. Those saved and had, who had become cold and worldly and ineffective crying out for revival. Revival broke out. Awakening started in that little church in Enfield, Connecticut, 1741. And then this was meshed with similar spiritual rumblings and humble repentance under ministries of people like the Tennant brothers, John Dickinson, Samuel Blair in New England, people like Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall, John Wesley, James Oglethorpe in this part of the country, George Whitfield who was used to tie it all together. The first great awakening had begun. A hellfire and brimstone preacher. No emotion. No walking up and down. No... Persuasive words, just reading a sermon. And revival broke out. An awakening happened. Because the truth of God was proclaimed. Yes, 
God does hold us over the pit of hell. Yes, He does as some loathsome spider. Because God cannot look upon our sin, my friends. We are sinners before God. The only thing that stands before us and the wrath of God is like a slender thread. Flames of divine wrath flashing all about it, ready every moment to seize it and burn it asunder. But praise God for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world that we might escape the wrath of God. And unless we understand that, unless we've been born again, we cannot have revival. What is it to be born again? The Bible is very clear. To be born again is to be born of God. Okay? As many as received Him, it says in John 1, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. To as many that believe on His name, which were born, not of the will of man, nor the will of flesh, but of God. To be born again is to be born of God. To be born of God is a work of God. Something that He does. There's nothing you can do to merit salvation. There's nothing I can do to give it to you. It's something that God does. And it begins with humility. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Bible says, twice and He will lift you up. Or it says, it says twice, God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then elsewhere it says, humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. So without genuine salvation, there is no genuine revival. And so only you know where you stand as far as that's concerned. I would encourage you to humble yourself before the Lord that He might lift you up. That you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him alone. Not in religion. Not in church attendance. Not in good works. But in Him alone. That you might be awakened spiritually. And then only then, as the temptation to coldness and ineffectiveness comes, can you be revived. Without genuine salvation, there is no genuine revival. So examine yourselves today, as Paul the Apostle told the Corinthian Christians, examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. The Gospel is quite simple, my friends. It's a stumbling block to so many. Quite simple. A free gift. Something that religion cannot, nor ever will be. In fact, when I preach the Gospel to the Nepalese, or to the Ladakhis, whoever we share with, the Israelis, whatever, these last two months I had to be very clear, this is not religion. Religion's man-made. The gospel's not religion. We say Dharma in Nepali. Yeshu Christko Susamatsar Dharma Hoina. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion. Religion's bondage. Dharma Banda Matre Leona Satsa. Dharma is only able to bring bondage. Jesus Christ is freedom from that bondage. Jesus Christ saves us to God and He saves us from God. The God that Jonathan Edwards preached, we need to be saved from Him and His judgment. And only Jesus Christ can do that. So repent of your sins, put your faith in Him today. And for those of us who have been born again, let's seek revival this week. God bless you. Thank you.